0: So it all, it all actually happened kind of accidentally. Now, a lot of firemen, we have side jobs because we don't, we don't make a whole lot of money, so we have to, you know, kind of go and hustle on the side. And comedy, actually, I was fortunate that I was involved in it for several years, and when I had to transition out of the fire service, I went into it full time, and I already had all the connections that I, I needed to make so I could get out there and make a living.
1: Enchanted Sky Media. Sky Media.
0: From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott.
1: That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. It's true that something good can come from even the worst situation, and you're about to hear from a great example. This is the story of how Travis Howes, a survivor of the Charleston 9 disaster in 2007, developed PTSD and ended up leaving the fire service after eight years. He went on to become a full-time stand-up comedian, and his 2015 album, Reporting for Duty, reached the top 10. Now he entertains around the country, and he's even performed at FDIC, where he will be again in 2020. And Travis Howes joins me now. Welcome to Code 3.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: It's good to have you. How are things going on the road?
0: They're going well, man. Just get fired back up here after a after a three-year break.
1: Why did you take a break?
0: I was in comedy for 10 years on stand-up, and I was pretty much all over the world, literally. Close to 40 weeks a year being gone, and we had our second child, and my wife pretty much becoming a single mother, raising two kids as a teacher. So I decided it was time to take a little break and help her out for a while. After three years, being home with a toddler, and honestly, it's a little rough, so I got to go back on the road. The toddler's <laughs> killing me.
1: It's been a long road to comedy for you. You've been a cop, a member of the Marine Corps, and a firefighter. But that super sofa fire was the emotional breaking point. What, what did you experience on that day?
0: Yeah, so June 18, 2007, that's a pretty, pretty well-known date in the fire service. I was a member of the Charleston Fire Department, Ladder Company 5. I was on the job several years at that point, maybe five years at that time. We had a fire that claimed the lives of nine of our guys. I was actually off duty that day, and we were actually down the street having a, a benefit for another brother of ours who was killed four months to the day prior in a in a vehicle accident from Engine Two. His name was Shane Albers. And when that call came out, we heard it was it was getting pretty bad over there. So a lot of us kind of just got in our vehicles and went over there. And by the time we got there, it was everything was everything was unfolding. And my firehouse was right down the street. And what I recall is I sent my girlfriend to pick up my gear from the firehouse. And then she got back pretty quickly with it. And at that time they were pulling the guys out of the building and, you know, doing the evacuation at that time. And we huddled around all the firefighters that there were so many different jurisdictions there. And we, we knew that we had guys inside missing the building to collapse. It was just it was a nasty night. And later on that evening, some of the chiefs came around tagging chiefs and they were asking for volunteers for body recovery. And I was one of the first ones that raised my hand because back then, you know, I was young, young hoe. You know, I thought if anybody was going to go in there and find one of our guys live, it'd be me. But I was, I was very wrong. I want to say there was probably fifteen to no more than twenty of us on the body recovery teams. They broke us up into four-man, five-man teams, and then we went in there and we spent the whole night searching through through the rubble, smoke. The building still had a good good amount of fire, and we were actually in there in my my truck, ladder five, and. Then ladder four was overhead they were still shooting their master streams down on top of us we were actually having to call them on the radio and having them to kind of like a marine corps terminology pretty much shift fire we'd have to have them shift so we could search certain areas Uh, they were knocking fire down eventually we would locate all of our guys i mean it took all night to locate them all and they were um they were I don't like talking about it, but it needs to be talked about. This is 12 years now, and uh, they were they were all burnt pretty much beyond recognition. But the coroner, once we had all the fire and you know smoke was out of the building and everything, we had to leave them in place because the coroner wanted to come in and actually GPS the exact spot where their bodies were. So what we did was we tried to identify them the best we could on scene until the coroner took them back and got you know final confirmation. So that's what we did. We went around to each individual member of our fire service that, that had fallen that night, and we were able to identify them just through, you know, various various ways. And I won't get into those details because it's pretty, it's very graphic. But yeah, and one of them was one of my best friends on the job. He was my first engineer when I started on the job, and we, you know, we spent a lot of time together. And I was actually kind of haunts me still to this day. And I did a did an article about it a couple of fire magazines. He called me right before. His engine was dispatched to that call. I was at the golf tournament. And I saw his his call coming in, and I forwarded it to my voicemail. And he left me this hilarious voicemail because he used to cuss me out all the time. So he left me this, this very vulgar message cussing me out, and it was all in good fun. And I listened to it when I was on the way to that fire that night, and I deleted it. But I, I didn't know Lewis was uh, being dispatched to that call. So I didn't know he was going to be there. And ultimately, I didn't know, obviously, he was going to you know lose his life. that's one of the things I wish I would have at least taken that call and talked to him. and I always think about that, and I wish I wouldn't have deleted the the dang voicemail. Yeah. But years to come, it's been 12 years, you know, and I still, to this day, I still have issues with it.
1: You've said you sunk into depression and PTSD after that whole incident. You were angry. You were suicidal. You had a death wish, some people might say. How and when did you realize you had to leave the fire service?
0: Well, it was two and a half years later after that fire, so i stayed I stayed on the job. Uh, I turned to alcohol like a lot of people did, and I was just you know I wasn't living my best life, but I didn't realize what was going on i just I just kind of accepted the new norm and I was always angry, depressed, and I was very hair triggered and Something set me off at the firehouse about two and a half years later, and I was actually forced to leave because I was sticking up for our guys. We had a monument out front of our firehouse. And one of our new guys that we had, they hired a bunch of new guys that came in, and one of our new guys put his coffee cup on top of the monument for our fallen. And I I took the cup and I shattered it on the ground, and I had some choice words for him. And then one of our other guys kind of defended Defended his actions, and I took that personal. So I kind of went after him on the attack. I just honestly, I lost my temper. I lost. I blacked out. We had ten guys in my firehouse, and before I knew it, I was pretty much going after all of them. And uh, it was just an incident that couldn't be swept under the rug. And at the time, I was I was getting counseling. I was getting help, and I thought I was you know making uh, progress. But um, I guess I wasn't. And ultimately, the city um, had to let me go. It was my last day on the job.
1: Now, you've moved on into comedy since then, using the funny stuff that's happened when you were a police officer or in the military or a firefighter. And I know you've always thought you were a comedian in real life, but what's the transition to professional stand-up been like after those jobs? So it all,
0: it all actually happened kind of accidentally. You now, a b- lot of firemen, we have side jobs because we don't you know, make a whole lot of money, so we have to you know kind of go and hustle on the side. And comedy actually, before that fire, I was doing comedy on the side, and I was making a little bit of money, not much. But I was fortunate that I was involved in it for several years, and when I had to transition out of the fire service, I went into it full time, and I already had all the connections that I, I needed to make so I could get out there and make a living. So it was just kind of accidental how it happened. I grew up pretty funny. I was voted class clown in high school. And, you know, when I was a police officer on the job, I was I was definitely not the uh, the standard police officer. I was a very, very jokey guy. And I actually used to get trouble for it all the time. And so it was, it was a pretty smooth transition into comedy for me. It was a natural fit. And I've been there ever since.
1: All right. We'll take a listen to a clip from one of your shows. This is about, well, we'll just play it. The
0: first fire I ever went to, a family of four was coming out when we were going in, and I had second thoughts. I was like, hey, wait a minute. Like, shouldn't we be with them, right? And by the time I went to my second fire, I had already received my first paycheck and realized I didn't have anything to live for anyway.
1: <laughs>
0: just rush right in. If you hear anybody talking bad about a firefighter, it's probably another man because that firefighter stole his woman. Well, I'm serious. Hey, oh, nothing. Firemen are notorious for stealing other men's women. There's something about a firefighter's profession that drives women crazy, man. My point. <laughs> Don't worry, fellas. We wouldn't keep your girls long. Because there's something about a $28,000 a year salary that drives them right back to you.
1: <laughs> Boy, that's for sure.
0: I, don't, I think they're making a little bit more than 28000 a year now, but that was the standard back then.
1: I'll be back with more right after this. Don't miss your chance to get your hands on the hottest logo wear around. Code 3 Podcast gear makes you look good and tells the world you're a fan. Now you can wear the Code 3 logo proudly. Just go to our website, Code3Podcast.com. Click the banner and you'll be able to order an assortment of cool apparel and accessories. And thanks for supporting the podcast that supports firefighters. So you work a lot. I mean, it sounds like you work pretty much as much as you want to do it, and that includes uh, shows at FDIC. What's that like?
0: Man, so I can tell you, just to give you kind of a background of my comedy resume, and this is just for people that may not be familiar with me because uh, chances are I've I've been through your area and you may have not even known it. when I was touring, I'd like I to say, I was touring almost 40 weeks a year for six years straight before I, I stopped doing it for three years. And I was able, during that time, to do all of the major comedy clubs pretty much across the world, a lot of college gigs, a lot of military stuff. I went overseas for the troops, been down to the resorts in the Bahamas, Canada, just kind of everywhere, Japan, name it. And I was fortunate enough to make that album that you just played, 2015, and it actually uh, climbed to number seven on the uh, the top 100 comedy album
1: and that album was reporting for duty
0: right reporting for duty that's right and i was able to go on and get some very good television credit and uh at the top of that top of my game is when i walked away from it i guess i thought i was Brett Favre at the time <laughs> i'll go ahead and retire a while. so anyway performing for FDIC and getting back to that of all the places i've ever performed i'm not just saying this that is by far the best show for me because i'm surrounded by Tons of firemen, tons of EMS personnel, people in our industry, and I get to go to these conferences. That FDIC isn't the only conference I do. I've done, I've done several, and it's just, it's such a humbling experience. Although I'm no longer wearing the uniform, I feel like I'm still very much part of it. And I perform for the um, firefighter cancer support network when I'm at FDIC, and all the funds that are raised from that event goes directly to helping firefighters who have succumbed to cancer, helping their families, or firefighters who have cancer currently. So it's a really good cause, and it just makes me feel very, very good to be a part of that.
1: Do you change your set at all when you're performing for people who know the business from the inside?
0: There might be little tweaks here and there, but for, for the most part, my, I used to do um, an hour to hour and 15 minutes when I, was, when I was headlining. And now that I'm getting back into it, obviously I'm, I'm building back up to that with some newer material. It was pretty much the standard, the same show. Just like if you go see uh, a rock band, uh, they they normally play the same songs. Because for us, it's old jokes, but a lot of times, most of your audience is brand new. So it's the first time that they get to see it. So I'd hate to change stuff that's really good and that works well. And maybe 10 people in the audience have already seen that, where the other 500 have not. When it's funny the second and third and fourth time someone saw it, that's when you know you have good jokes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. And you mentioned that you do benefit shows you you do them for what you call public service heroes. Why is doing those kind of shows important to you?
0: well, you know i think I think people throw that around so loosely and they you know people say they want to appreciate our emergency services and i I used to hear it all the time, oh, we love emergency service and it's it's almost like it's the thing to say, but with me, it's really honestly the thing to do because they are my family. I know what these guys go through, and these girls go through. I know the darkness of the job. I know the fun times of the job. I know the chaos of the job. And they're really special people. Like, I, I genuinely understand that. And I'm not saying the general public doesn't respect what they do, but I don't, I don't think they really have an understanding for exactly what they go through. So for me to be able to go and just give back and just give them some laughs and maybe take some stress off of their plate for just, just a, a moment in time, man, it, it, it really is. There really is no better feeling.
1: So where can people go to find out what shows you have upcoming?
0: So I'm literally, as I'm talking to you right now, just decided to come back into comedy two weeks ago. And we're making a lot of major changes to um, my social media and everything. So as of right now, you're going to have to follow me on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, My website's under construction. It used to be, uh, and it's going to be funnyunderfire.com. That's what it will be again. But we're taking a different trajectory now. So we're having to build, build this site. But you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm pretty much limited on friend requests right now. I think they cut you off at 5,000. I'm at that limit. But you can still follow me. There's follow-ups in there that we've opened up, and I used to not have that. Or you can go to my Instagram page, just my name, Travis, C-R-A-C-I-S-H-O-W-C-E. That's that simple.
1: All right. Travis, how's it? It was great having you on Code 3 today.
0: I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
1: And we put some more information about Travis Howes and where you can see him on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash Travis. Check it out. Please don't forget that you can support this podcast by making a monthly pledge. And if you give us 10 bucks a month or more, you get access to some bonus material we call the Code 3 Bull Session. It's further interview material that didn't make the actual show. If you get something out of Code 3, if you're able to help keep it going, go on over to Code3Podcast.com support to join the people who are already backing the show. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then... Stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted
0: Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.